0: Well hello and welcome to episode number 383 of the Plane Talking UK podcast, I'm Carlos and in this week's packed show, EasyJet confuses its passengers, BA unveil a striking new livery and one Italian pilot flies it like he stole it. In the military this week we talk uh, about our experience from 9-11, 2001 and the 20 years since that day. We'll listen to Lieutenant Colonel Jeff's personal accounts from that day, and we finish with the MOD putting some items up for sale that you can go and grab so joining me this week as always across the lands of the UK here in his stately manner in the sprawling Buckinghamshire countryside, it's Neville bounds.
1: Oh yes, hello everybody, evening Carlos. hope you're well, and uh, welcome to the show been quite a hectic week again over here, uh, and uh, yeah, looking forward to a, a great show tonight. Lots of stories, lots of aviation stuff happening this week, so it's nice to be able to bring these to you.
0: So uh, what have you been up to this week, Nev? Because uh, you've, well, you've had a busy week, I think. Yeah, a bit
1: I mean. of travelling. Uh, had a very nice um, coffee in the office of Neil Cloughley, actually, up at uh, Duxford. That is uh, HQ at Faraday Aviation, talking aviation with him as we do. And there's this stuff going on there, which he can't talk about at the moment, but uh, looking very promising by the sounds of things. So, um, and of course, it's the Duxford Air Show uh, at the end of next week. It's uh, Saturday and Sunday next week. So uh, Neil's saying there's going to be 14 Spitfires up there, which will be quite interesting. Sadly, I can't make it. Uh, but anyone that's going, uh, as long as the weather holds out, they should have a nice time, I would imagine.
0: Ah, oh, it sounds like you've uh, you've had a good week, but um, yeah. Yeah. You've, been, you've done a bit of driving this week. By the sounds of it, as well, now which is yeah, a lot good.
1: of driving, oh. yes. Uh, but you know that's how it is. But uh, back on the plane next week, off to Edinburgh and Dundee for three days—Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of next week. So I shall be in that lounge uh, with the uh, bacon rolls and making a nuisance of myself. Generally, <laughs> so we have
0: uh, got him back on again this week, uh, all the way across the into the US of a. It is, of course, the well, well, it doesn't need to an introduction, really. The amazing Armando.
2: Hey guys, thanks for having me back on the show again. It's always nice to be here live.
0: So Armando, what's uh, what's been going on in your world this uh, this week? Any flying?
2: Well, so interesting. Nev asked me the same question in the pre-show, and I couldn't come up with an answer because I actually have no idea what day it is. Uh, I've thought about it since then, and yes, I did fly this week. I I did fly a a new Skydive pilot. We're training her up uh, for uh, joining us at our drop zone, so that'll get us back to full staffing. And then earlier this week, I actually had a really nice trip, a charter trip up to New England which is mm. they tell me is better than the old England, but I don't know that for sure. <laughs> um, so I went to New England, and uh, hey, what, what do you do when you go to New England? You, you bring back some lobsters. So we found a little place with some live lobsters and made the airplane stinky in the back in the cargo compartment. But that night, Megan and I enjoyed some fresh New England lobster for dinner. So it's kind of the advantage of flying charter planes. <laughs>
0: I really did think that at one point you were actually going to say there Amanda that you went to New England and got some beer but yeah you, Oh, no. You, no no.
2: No no. Beer. It would look it would look kind of suspicious if a couple of pilots were walking out to the airplane <laughs> with some case of <laughs> cases of beer. Plus I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. We got all the breweries.
0: Uh, I know. And I've got a brewery at home, actually, it's in my in my uh, currently in my fridge because I had a good delivery this week of some new beers. So I shall be sampling them this weekend after a busy weekend of doing wedding stuff. But anyway, uh, not joining us this week uh is uh, the the man who normally sits in this seat and presses all the correct buttons and uh, does everything and doesn't get stressed out at all. And that's Matt Smith. Unfortunately, Matt can't be with us tonight because he's uh, at a, a fun works do and john's just saying in my ear i'm pressing all the wrong buttons and yes that's that's what i'm here for um but he's uh he's having a works party so um, i'm sure he's he's probably actually tuning in right now just to see the carnage that is uh the start of the show with me in here on my own but uh yeah loads to get through but Oh, we'll, we'll manage, we'll manage, don't panic. So we're going to say a big hello to everyone who has joined us in the YouTube chat room this evening. Uh, loads of all the uh, usual family members in there. Just going to say a quick hello to, let's see who's in there. We've got GB Model Zone. Hello to you. Mazous Karim. Hello. Uh, Lee Davies. Uh, we have got uh, Megan, obviously keeping an eye on Armando. Uh, Sturman. Hello to you, Sturman. Didn't, haven't seen you for ages. About four or five hours ago. Uh, Grime Haley, hello to you, Grime. Uh, we've got uh, Richard Adams let me just scroll back down to the list here Captain Cruz hello to you Captain Cruz Neville Bounds is keeping an eye on things with the blue span of doom Jenny over in Rome hello to you Jenny hope you are having fun uh, over there not having the storms that we're currently having here on the east coast Uh, Nick Codling hello to you Nick Uh, great bit of feedback coming up from you later on the show as well so keep your ears open for that Uh, we have got Myla hello to you Myla hope you are well as well i hope you're having fun and not uh, getting too many of these storms as well where you are um miles high hello to you miles high tony s as well in the chat room this week and uh, just to make sure i don't miss anyone else uh, i think i've covered everyone The chat room's going crazy uh yes and welcome to you, one and all. Don't forget, if you are listening to the show as an audio podcast, take yourselves over to our YouTube page. Uh, just search for Plane Talking UK. Uh, you'll find us on there, our YouTube page. Give us a subscribe. And don't forget to click on that bell icon, which is right next door, to be notified when we are live, as we are right now, doing a live show. And uh, you can join all the family in the chat room, uh, like they uh, like they are every week, looking after us in there, making sure that we do things right and get things correct. Oh there we go. So um well I think is it time guys that we should uh, move on to some uh, commercial news?
1: Yes as we're here why not? Let's right. do it.
0: Let's do it. And this one comes to us from bbc.com, bbc.co.uk, the itvnews.com. And also IT or Bournemouth Air Show as well. This is um, biplane crashing into water at Bournemouth Air Festival. Uh, two people have been injured after a plane crashed into the water at Bournemouth Air Festival on Saturday the 4th of September. It involved a small wing walker aircraft belonging to the Aero Superbatics display team and took place away from the main display area from Bournemouth. Beach. The pilot uh, has been named as Dave Barrell from Sirencester and the wing walker named as 23-year-old Kirsten Pobjoy from Stroud. Dorset police said the pair had been rescued from Poole Harbour at around uh, half past three and were reported to have suffered only minor injuries. Uh, eyewitnesses on social media described hearing the aircraft's engine cut out before it was seen ditching into Poole Harbour. Flying was suspended for the day after the crash, but the festival resumed its flying program on the Sunday. The aircraft has since been recovered, and both Dorset Police and the Air Accidents Investigation Branch have both confirmed they have launched an investigation into the crash. It's always sad to hear about these things when these happen, when you hear about uh, crashes at air shows and obviously the, the good outcome from this is is that both the um both the you know the, the team members the pilot and the uh, the wing walker are both um safe and uh, with only a few minor injuries but um yeah the pictures you see on the screen now the aircraft being recovered what do you think Armando, That's end of life for that um airframe
2: um well there are some amazing restorations around the world but this is a Boeing Stearman it was actually a Boeing Super Stearman um, which is a 650 horsepower uh, Pratt and Whitney engine in it, and uh, it looks pretty beat up. I think the wings are certainly toast. This the steerman is, uh, unless it's been upgraded, it's it's usually just made out of wood and fabric. Um, it's got an uh, aluminum frame, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's uh, unlikely that this airplane will see any will be back in the air anytime soon. They could potentially rest you know refurbish it but it, it's going to be a lot of work
0: mm, it's a shame isn't it with the air, th- air show starting back up again here in the uk that um th- that this has happened but um, i'm sure the uh, aaib will get to the bottom of what happened here but it sounds like a possible uh engine issue with the aircraft maybe yeah
2: that seems to, some of the eyewitnesses uh seem to be uh pointing that way that it that the engine was out when it when it hit the water so um, what that tells me is, again, you know, to, the steerman does not glide well. It doesn't have flaps. It's uh, not exactly a, a great gliding aircraft. So, for the pilot to be able to put it into in the water, um, and both of them get out, okay, that's uh, it's pretty impressive.
0: Mm. Right. So Nev, uh, you've got uh, you've got the next story, and uh, we're going uh, to the UK for this one with our
1: favorite low cost carrier. Yes, of course, Story 2 is always a Ryanair story and it's on writers.com this week says Ryanair pulls out of Max 10 negotiations with Boeing. Uh, Ryanair is willing to wait years for Boeing to drop its prices before placing a new a big new plane order with the US company. Chief executive Michael O'Leary told Reuters, the Irish budget airline, one of Boeing's biggest customers, said on Monday that it had ended talks over a new order of 737 Max 10 jets worth tens of billions of dollars because the prices on offer were too high. <coughs> Uh Michael O'Leary says, we're not wasting any time on those max 10 discussions, nor will we wait for a period of 2, 4, 6, 8, 10 years until we get to the next crisis, he said. We at Ryanair have always had the discipline to wait out the cycle. Uh, Europe's largest budget carrier is already the region's biggest max customer with 210 of the 197 seat max 8 200s on order. It's dangled a fresh order, potentially worth $33 billion at list prices for up to 250 of the 230 seat max 10s. But O'Leary said that there's been a fundamental breakdown in talks due to the fact that Boeing believed that the COVID-19 crisis was effectively over, whilst Ryanair believed that the US giant, still badly needed an order we do not share boeing's optimistic pricing outlook although this may explain why in recent weeks other large boeing customers such as delta and jet 2 have been placing new orders with airbus rather than boeing o'leary said Uh, boeing said it valued ryanair's business but it had to exercise discipline and make decisions that make sense. O'Leary said that he was not concerned that the breakdown in talks would leave him with too few uh, planes when his current order is completed in 2025, as Ryanair already had more aircraft on order than any of its competitors. I think the word brinkmanship is the one I would use here, <laughs> don't you? Um, I, I, I I don't know how many times we, uh, we, we hear these sorts of things, but... Um, I think the trouble is with these sort of situations you don't know how aviation is going to be recovering. And if we we'll, we'll talk about nine eleven a bit later on. But the nine eleven recovery was relatively quick compared to what we are talking about with this pandemic and trying to make forecasts on what's going to be happening. Now, obviously Michael O'Leary wants to buy the aircraft at preferential prices and that's fully understandable. But of course Boeing need to make a profit as well so uh, i'm sure there's going to be a halfway house somewhere but um yeah they've got to do some more talking i think before that happens
0: i think i'll look at my crystal ball and look to the future there for about say a year or maybe two years time and i think he'll be probably reversing this decision and going back and to boeing and saying oh actually yeah can we can we have some
1: yeah, and it, frankly speaking, he's never going to switch to a, an Airbus fleet or a mixed fleet um, because that messes up the whole method of the low-cost carrier operation, doesn't it? So we'll have to see, won't we?
0: Lee Davis in the chat room just a quick comment from Lee says um, O'Leary just wants thinks on the cheap while passengers pay more. <laughs> I see his point there. Hmm. Um, yeah, I will two. say
2: I, I I never said in my life i'll agree with michael leary but um i i don't know where that we're entirely out of the woods quite yet uh yeah here in the united states i feel like we're walking on on eggshells as far as the recovery goes and you know i've seen recently not just with uh, aircraft orders but airlines are recruiting hard and they are uh, hiring lots of people and you know, everything is pointing towards things going back to normal, but just as easily this winter, I I believe that it could all kind of take a pause or plateau a little bit. So if I was a, a business owner now talking about tens of billions of dollars of aircraft, I'm not I'm not sure that I entirely disagree with with O'Leary here. Um, you know, we'll see what happens over the next couple of months
3: mm-hmm.
0: So sticking uh, with you, Armando, you've got the next story, and uh, it's, uh, it's it's good news for, uh, for Airbus.
2: Yeah, hot, hot on the heels of that last story. Uh, Airbus A320 family has finally passed the mark of 10,000 aircraft deliveries, according to the airframers' latest order. Um, so they delivered an aircraft with uh, serial number 10,000 to Middle East Airlines last year, but the actual production run had yet to reach five figures due to delays in complications of course caused by COVID. So flight global analysis of the Airbus's uh, monthly delivery figures show that 8,095 conventional A320s and 1,909 A320neo jets had been handed over by Airbus by the end of August. Uh, This brings the overall deliveries for this single aisle family aircraft to 10,004 uh, the Milestone has yet to receive any Airbus citations so far, but according to Flight Global, uh, 10,000 10, aircraft could have been, uh, sorry, the 10,000th aircraft could have been an A320neo delivered to uh, China Eastern Airlines or Indigo. Um, those I, These guys track all this, you know, airplanes getting operational. Uh 10,000 deliveries, that mark is impressive because the A320 has debuted only 33 years ago, in April 1998. That's when Air France first put the aircraft into service. As a comparison, it took Boeing 50 years to reach the 10,000's uh, 737, which was delivered to Southwest Airlines in 2018. Uh, they said, uh, according, uh, thanks to the perfect combination of technical improvements and new turbofan engines the A320neo has taken the lead in terms of orders, especially on the count of the A321XLR, which is, they're calling it the wide-body exterminator uh, due to its wide range and passenger capacity. So if there are no more surprises, the uh, A320 family is expected to surpass the quantity of 737s delivered within just a short time, showing that uh, how a newer project can make a complete difference in the long term. So Congratulations to Airbus.
0: Yeah, it seems, certainly seems like um, they are definitely, you know, um, reaping the benefits of what's been going on with Boeing over the last few um, few years. But um, I'm still a Boeing lover at the end of the day, so don't know about you guys.
1: <laughs> well, yes. I think, I don't know what they call the XLR, the Wide Bodies Exterminator, though. Um, I'm still... You know, yet to be convinced about the viability of single aisle aircraft across the pond, um, especially from a cabin crew operations point of view. But it'll be interesting to see how that works out. But, you know, um, it's good to see that the 320 family has, has passed 10,000 airframes delivered. Brilliant, it.
0: I was listening to a, a, another podcast earlier on today whilst I was out driving. And I was listening to the guys who present this particular show. I shan't mention the name of the show. But um, it's a very well-known podcast. And they were saying how a lot of people um, over in the US, aircraft fans and stuff like that, are, are still a bit miffed that the Boeing didn't continue
1: building the 757. No. And, mm. I mean, I think that was, that was a great short to medium-haul aircraft, wasn't mm. it? Yeah. Um Especially on the shuttle routes. Uh, from London to Edinburgh, Belfast, Glasgow, and also slightly further afield down to Athens and Stockholm as, as well. Actually, um, I remember they, BA having 7.5s, didn't they, Nev? They do. They did. Yeah, yeah, did, Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, a very sporty takeoff could be guaranteed with those as well. Mm. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the shuttle routes that they used to operate, uh, brilliant aircraft. And, uh, I've flown a couple to, where's I go? Uh, oh, uh, to Cologne, I think a couple of times for a show there. Um, certainly Stockholm, certainly Athens at some point as well. So, very useful for the medium range stuff as well. But just not my idea of going across the pond in one.
0: Mm, yeah. We, we know someone who's done that though, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the next story comes to us from the daily record.co.uk. And back to the UK for this one. This is EasyJet's new luggage policy explained as cabbage bag rule confuses passengers. So EasyJet has a new luggage policy in place and it's reportedly confusing passengers up and down the UK. The most recent case involved a passenger at Edinburgh Airport that claimed to have been caught out by the new cabin bag rule. I hadn't heard about this one actually no. Uh, The traveller arrived at Edinburgh Airport with a small cabin bag for his one hour flight to London on Sunday but he was challenged by staff when they measured uh, each passenger's luggage easyjet staff claimed that the 2 inch wheels on his cabin bag uh, did not meet the measurements in their new luggage policy meaning the, that uh, he would have to pay 24 english pounds for the bag to be stored in the hold easyjet introduced the new policy on cabin bags in february this year in a bid to reduce queuing times and ensure people and customers uh, guaranteed a spot uh, to store their luggage on board the uh, aircraft in overhead lockers Uh, the new rule means that passengers will be allowed to bring one free bag on board but it must fit under the seat in front of them and be no larger than 45 by 36 by 20 centimeters including this is including any handles or wheels so previously customers were allowed to bring larger bags with a maximum dimension of 54 by 45 by 25 centimetres on board, which could be stored in the overhead locker. Holding makers now have uh, to upgrade to an up front or leg- extra legroom seat in order to take larger sizes on board the aircraft. The price of upgrading to both of these services range in price starting from 7 99 there is no charge for EasyJet Plus cardholders and Fare customers who will continue to have additional large cabin bags included in their booking. Robert Carey, Chief Commercial and Customer Officer for EasyJet, said, "...punctuality is important to our customers, and we know that if they have their bags placed into the hold at the gate due to the limited space on board, this can cause flight delays, and it can be frustrating for them too." Our new policy will improve boarding and punctuality for everyone and as well give our customers certainty of what they will have with them on board. For families, we'll continue to provide a number of options to allow them to bring additional items free of charge, helping keep travel easy and affordable for families when they fly with us. And this uh, change was announced in December of last year and introduced uh, on the line in February of this year. So, I mean, this this catches quite a few. I've seen this catch people out before, and this is before this came into place with EasyJet. I've seen this on with uh, other airlines I've flown with, where passengers take on bags, and then when they're sized at the gate, the handles or the wheels make the bag oversized. But I've never
1: had this problem, Nev. I've I've got a solution to it. It's quite straightforward. all you'll pardon the language stop changing the bloody rules why can't they just leave it as it was it's perfectly all right and i I, you can't go doing this all the time because people are booking flights a long way out a year Mm. in advance sometimes and i i think this constant moving target of uh, what you can have in what the weight is what the size has got to be they've got to stop it otherwise all, all they're going to do is create boarding delays at the gate Missed slots, more cost for the airline. So actually, it's not in their best interest at all, I wouldn't have thought. It seemed to work okay previously, apparently. So why why change it? I I don't don't fully understand it.
0: How about you, Armando, over in the US? What do you think of, obviously, you have your restrictions with the airlines that you fly with over in the US, with Southwest and all the other ones. But um, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think in general, the size rules uh, haven't changed too much like they have over there. Uh, I think some of the weights have over the over the years I would be really upset if uh unless I was flying spirit because you kind of know what you're getting there um <laughs> or legion. but if they if yeah like Nev is saying if I book a trip and i and I know what I'm supposed to be packing and I'm planning it and if they suddenly tell me that my carry on luggage is not the correct size for carry on luggage um I have a bag that fits. Under the seat, because that's what I used to use when I was uh, at the airline and I was commuting. I, I didn't used to take a big crew bag, uh, only because there was you were often the last person on the airplane just begging for a seat as a jump seater or, or a commuter. So I actually most of the time just traveled with a little bag that fits under the seat. And I can't really imagine packing more than two days worth of stuff in there, uh, not to mention you know you may have a purse with you or some kind of other small item and if that's your one thing then i, I don't know geez stop like nev says stop changing the rules
0: <laughs> so nev we're going to move to you then for this next story and it, I, I love this one when you pop this one in the old um notebooks for this week um this livery is awesome
1: i like it yes and um i've calmed down a bit now as you may have gathered um, but it's, uh, this is on the travelweekly.co.uk and simplyflying.com website. Uh, UK flag carrier British Airways has revealed a special blue livery for one of its Airbus A320neo aircraft. The airline displayed the freshly painted narrowbody at its Heathrow base and the launch, at the launch of its BA Better Worlds sustainability program. With this scheme, BA is looking to lead the way in terms of creating a more sustainable airline industry. Golf Tango Tango November Alpha, which is the first A320neo accepted into the BA fleet, received its new colours in Ostrava in the Czech Republic. Uh, The launch of the BA Better World programme ties in with the upcoming COP26 UN Climate Change Conference, which takes place in Glasgow in November. As part of the scheme, British Airways has established a partnership with British Petroleum. BA said that the partnership with oil and gas company BP meant it had access to uh, enough sustainable aviation fuels to run carbon-reduced flights between London, Edinburgh and Glasgow, uh, which is where the uh, COP26 conference is going to be. Uh, The blend of sustainable aviation fuel and traditional jet fuel will result in an 80% reduction in emissions. BA is also switching from diesel to renewably powered electric pushback vehicles on the ground and removing weight from its aircraft by introducing lighter seats and trolleys, in-flight magazines and paper flight manuals. It's pledged to remove single-use plastic and source more products made from recycled materials and last year vowed to offset all emissions from its domestic flights. uh, Speaking at the launch of the BA Better World programme, Chief Executive Officer Sean Doyle said, so far this year at IAG we became the first European airline group to commit to powering 10% of all flights by sustainable aviation fuel by 2030. We know that BA Better World is going to be a pivotal moment for change and the aircraft is part of a much bigger story for BA in terms of how we emerge from the pandemic and how we thrive. So, well, that's a good news story, isn't it? Good to hear that. And, um, also, I think because, uh, as we were saying earlier, we don't kind of really know what's going to happen with aviation, really. I think, again, they're looking to uh, see if they can reduce costs and carbon footprint and all the rest of it. So I, I, I get why they're doing that, definitely. Pretty, aer- pretty airplane, huh?
0: It is a nice... I love I love the blue colour
1: as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That, no, that it, libri- it is good. A um, few people said there's no red in it. Well, I think that's <laughs> obvious from the picture. <laughs> it's not supposed to be red. Uh, but uh, no, I, I think um let's see how it goes. I'm, I'll be interested to see if it's down at Heathrow on Monday. Actually, when I'm when I'm flying out, Ooh, here.
0: So let's pictures see. now, pictures now. Yes, pictures, or it yeah. didn't happen. No, it yeah. didn't happen exactly. Yeah. So, Armando, we're going to uh, go all the way to Hong Kong for this next one, aren't
2: we? Yeah, from Flight Global, uh, Hong Kong Airport bosses uh, on Tuesday announced that the completion of the tarmac works on the third runway is marking the halfway point of a. Uh, well we're going to go. i don't i don't know how many uh hong kong dollars this is 141 billion what's it 18.2 us billion dollars uh the expansion of the city's aviation hub the uh, hong kong airport expects its third runway to be ready for use in 2022 uh, that's about 6 years after construction began with the whole project apparently being on schedule so this announcement came on september 7th with some 90% of reclamation works uh, being completed for the 650 hectare tra- expansion which the airport bosses have described as building an entirely new airport on top of the existing uh, 1250 hectare facility according to tommy uh, lung king yin the deputy director of the third runway project management uh, he said we are still on time and on budget over half of the construction work is done this comes as the uh Operator the HKIA operator Airport Authority marks the completion of runway pavement works, calling it a major milestone in this three-runway system expansion project. So, as part of the development plans, Hong Kong is rebuilding a second terminal and an additional passenger concourse, as you see in the pictures there, that will span two hundred and eighty-three thousand square meters, while adding additional parking for sixty-three additional aircraft there will also be new automated passenger movers and transport to people underground between concourses and terminal two the wider airport city as they're calling it uh, will house a mega shopping and entertainment wing to attract cross-border travelers other features will include enhanced infrastructure such as a bridge for coaches to connect to the main airport building without needing to go through immigration and customs so there's a New 3,800-meter runway will be the first to be operational. Uh, the other elements of the three-runway expansion project will be ready by 2024. And uh, I think they're shooting for a capacity of about 120 million passengers and 10 million
1: tons of freight annually. So pretty cool, huh? Impressive. Yeah. I've also noticed in that that part of the world they they just build it, don't they? You know, obviously they-, <laughs> they really do. They, they want a
0: third runway. They'll build a third runway. We yeah. want we want oh. a third runway here in the UK. Just give us a couple of twenty years, millennia.
1: Yeah, a couple yeah. of well decades. Well, it's yeah. been how long? Is it twenty years that's been talked about? Um, yeah, but yeah, so.
2: Anyway. Yeah, for sure. Those airports out there, they just they just pick up projects and say, "Oh, water, no problem. We'll build an <laughs> island. Oh, <laughs> we'll build a runway. We'll
1: we'll build, build water. A, we'll
2: we'll build water. We'll build a new city." <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, dear. If if like, you know, I would
2: I, I would love to see some some renovations like this. So this is a unique one because they're bas- they're basically taking an existing airport and completely rebuilding it. Um, I know there's plenty of airports here in the U.S. that could use this kind of uh, renewal. Uh, to say the least. Uh, it's interesting, you know, to fly into these airports and, you know, what we call Class B airports or Class B airspace and just seeing, you know, I, like Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a sad thing for me because I remember as a kid flying into Pittsburgh and thinking, oh my gosh, this is the airport of the future, right? But <laughs> uh, uh, now I fly into Pittsburgh and it's just, it looks dated, like Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and you know, LaGuardia is perpetually just <laughs> run down.
1: Was Pittsburgh formerly a, a military uh, site or, or have I just made that up? I don't know why I thought that was... No, I, I,
2: I don't think Pittsburgh International was. It is It is a joint use airport. So it is that the s- e- uh, eastern half of the airport is, is military. Um, the Pennsylvania Air National Guard is there with C-17s, I believe. Um but uh, but no, I think it was 1990. Oh man, you're really testing me. I, so the original Pittsburgh Airport was Allegheny County Airport, which is in downtown Pittsburgh, and then they built this in the 80s uh, to open up this new terminal in the in the 90s, mid 90s, I believe, is when that X shaped the X wing terminal.
0: Opened. Mm. Mm. Just looking at a comment actually in the chat room from uh, Captain Cruz and uh, he says it will be interesting to see how they operate three parallel runways that close to mountains and the corridors to and from Shenzhen and uh, Zhuhai airports
2: i'm sure they'll figure it out they probably thought of it huh yeah,
0: probably have thought of it they'll, they'll build another runway to to Make up for it or something, I don't know. Let's move on <laughs> to the next story. And uh, this one comes to us from AP News, uh, WCVB.com, Flight Global as well. And uh, this is a crash that's happened. No deaths reported, a small plane crashes in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Uh, The plane carrying six passengers and a pilot crashed at Provincetown Municipal Airport on Thursday. That's uh, yesterday. Uh, No deaths were reported. The Federal Aviation Administration uh, says the twin engine Cessna 402 went off the end of the runway while attempting to land at around 3.30 p.m. Uh, On Thursday, the Cape Air flight 2072 was landing when weather caused an issue, resulting in the crash. Town manager Alex Morse said it was not uh, a high-impact crash, according to Morse. And emergency responders received a call at around 3:30 for a report of a plane crash at the end of the runway at Race Point Road. The plane was in flames, according to a newspaper. So weather conditions at the Provincetown Airport uh, between 3 and 4 p.m. on Thursday included light to heavy rain and mist with winds of 7 to 10 knots or 11 to 16 kilometers an hour, according to the U.S. National Weather Service. Autumn Kerr, a passenger on the flight, told WCVB the plane was attempting to land but ran into trouble. Uh, she said, well, we are obviously not going to land and pick uh, picked back up, Kerr said. All of a sudden, we just hit the ground in the trees and burst into flames and in the front and then the right side burst into flames. Kerr said the pilot helped get her out of her seat, even as she was trying to escape from the plane while she was still buckled to it. She found her way to an exit and escaped the flames as they spread. Six of those on board were taken to hospital with some minor burns, and sources have not confirmed those reports as yet. The FAA and the NTSB are investigating. And just to note, Cape Air operates a fleet of around 100 small aircraft, including 73 Cessna 402s, uh, 24 new TechNAM P2012s uh, travellers, and serum shows uh, the Cessna uh, that had this crash was registration November 88833 that was built in 1980. Now, I had to have a look, Armando, because I, I couldn't for the life of me picture what the 402 looked like. because um, I haven't seen one up close and personal. So I had a little look and uh, it's quite a smart little sporty looking um, Cessna, twin engines.
2: Yeah. Do you remember the show Wings, the the sitcom from back in the day? With famous. Sandpiper Air, so no. two two of uh, Sandpiper Air's tail numbers are actually still in service with Cape Air. Cape Air is a great operator. They do uh, mostly in essential air service operations around the Northeast. I was just talking about Pittsburgh. Um, they act, they fly out of there into um, a bunch of different places, but they they generally fly these unpressurized twin engine aircraft um, as a Part One Thirty Five scheduled operation. Um, and they are, uh, I believe, code with with a larger airline. I can't remember which one. Um, but the Provincetown Airport is a challenging airport. It's actually only 3,500 feet. It's so about 1,000 meters. So even in a uh, Cessna, a Cessna 402 is a pretty fast airplane. And uh, with the weather conditions being as challenging as they were, um, a 3,500-foot runway suddenly Gets real short if you don't put it down in the in the first uh, you know third of the runway. Usually we brief up because you know I fly into similar into similar airports as this one thousand meter runways, where you brief a go around point. If you don't have the mains on on the ground by a certain point, um, you you initiate a go around. Now they may have uh, had an, an well, first of all. As a scheduled part 135 operation, they are probably two pilot operations, but they are also probably allowed single pilot operations, which means you don't have that second set of eyes in the aircraft um, to say, to just help you with your aeronautical decision making. Um, so a lot of things just can happen very quickly where that 3,500 foot runway suddenly becomes 2,500 feet if you're just carrying an extra couple knots or you get a little bit of a tailwind and, um, and then the weather patterns it's outside it's uh, Provincetown is way out there in Cape Cod Bay it's an island and and it can have some really, really challenging uh, wind conditions and weather, so it's, it sounds like they may have had their hands full um, but luckily everybody everybody got out of the airplane, so they're probably just trying to get it stopped before the end of the runway. so mm. as I said, it was, it was a, a low a low impact crash uh, as it just probably bumbled off the end of the runway
0: So Nev uh, we're going to move to you for the next story and it's another BA story which we always like
1: yeah, it is. It's on the Daily Echo uh, website and it says that uh, British Airways is set to launch a new route from Southampton Airport to Salzburg this winter. And it's going to be connecting the area with the slopes of the Austrian city. And the flight will run between uh, December the 11th 12th uh, tw- this year and April the 16th, 2022, operating once a week on Saturdays from December the 11th. The flights will set travellers back £75 for a return fare, which is pretty good value, I think. Uh, This Mm. is the second winter route the airline has launched from Southampton, having previously announced new flights to Chambry in France that will take off from December the 18th. Tom Stoddart, who's the managing director of BA CityFlyer, which operates the routes, said that new flights are really exciting for the company. Customers are excited to get away and enjoy parts of Europe. They haven't been able to visit for nearly two years. But BA fares start from £75, making it a very attractive option as a skiing destination, uh, destination this season. Uh, Matt Hazelwood, who's the commercial director at AGS Airport, which owns Southampton Airport, added that the new route is fantastic news, particularly given the city hosts one of, of Europe's best festive markets. So that's good, isn't it? Good to see some regional airports going away for the skiers and what have you. Um, so, um, yes, I'm hoping obviously by December that things may have eased a little bit on the COVID front as well. So that might make testing and all that sort of business slightly easier. But uh, good to see there's some uh, good value flights from the regional airport.
0: Do you think um, do you think they'll be using some of those embryos that they've got stored at um, over at, at Norwich here?
1: Would um, not surprise me. Yeah, that's the sort mm. of uh, aircraft that would work well on that route, wouldn't it? So if, uh, yeah, I although
0: would've... although I did hear a rumor this week actually that there's been a lot of movement at Norwich with certain aircraft. So oh, okay. I think some of the I think some of the BA ones have. Gone somewhere. They've been flown out of there somewhere, or either that or they've gone into the hangars for checks before they've been flown out. But there mm. has been movement of uh, of aircraft there air, because there was a lot of aircraft stored on on site at Norwich, just near us here in East Anglia. So yeah, possibly BA of getting some of these ready to um yeah, to uh, to get uh, or possibly do the uh, London City runs. Nev. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, for for our American listeners, I did. There's no way for me to explain. How you guys do it over there, and how well you do this. Where, as Miles High in the chat room is saying, who, you know, who can resist a flight that costs not much more than the ski pass itself? That, I, that's probably one of the biggest things that I miss about living in Europe is the ability to go on Wednesday afternoon go onto the internet and figure out where these low cost carriers have the cheapest routes, and then just go there for the city with, or for the weekend without without a plan. You can, for 20 pounds, you can jump on a low cost carrier, get to Oslo, get to, uh, Rijeka, get to wherever, and, um, and, and just have a great weekend and figure it out as you go. Uh, I don't know. There's, there's no way. Just if you're, if you're here in the United States and you're, and you're a listener, just go over to Europe and just use their, the equivalent of, of the domestic, uh, flights, you know, over there and, and just go travel everywhere. It's so cool the way you guys do it. I'm so jealous.
0: Well, you, you can come over here. We just, we just can't come over and see you guys at the moment.
2: Yeah. I know that's <laughs> sad, <huh? laughs>
0: which I hope changes between now and December. That's all I'm going to say on that particular note. Anyway, moving on, uh, to the next story and armando this one is for you and the, the honestly this story when i saw this come early or break on earlier this week and the videos that were on social media
2: <sighs> right wow so cool so this comes to us directly from redbull.com and uh, while most of europe was still in bed On the weekend, Italian stunt pilot Dario Costa got up early, climbed into his airplane, and, apropos of nothing, flew it through two Turkish motorway tunnels, becoming the first person on Earth to do so. The flight, which took place at the Katalsa tunnels on the northern Marmara Highway, east of Istanbul, broke the world record record for the longest tunnel ever flown through in an airplane. Uh, And in in Congress, the title, which... Up to this point has not yet been hotly contested. Uh, so this flight, which began in the shorter, uh, Catalsa 2 tunnel, then emerged into open air before again, uh, going into the 5,300 feet Catalsa 1 section. Um, so the whole flight covered about 1.4 miles at an average speed of 245 kilometers per hour and lasted 43.44 seconds. Uh, which, when you watch the video, is disturbingly long time for an aircraft to be underground. Uh, The aircraft involved was actually an Edge 540, which is an American-built aerobatics and racing aircraft capable of a staggering roll rate of 420 degrees per second and a climb rate of 3,700 feet per minute. (laughs) Two attributes which would appear uh, incredibly unhelpful for the purposes of flying... On uh, dead straight through a tunnel, <laughs> especially given the aircraft had really only four meters of clearance beyond each wingtip and was uh, 70 to 160 centimeters from the road surface for the whole flight. So the, the, the stunt only lasted 43 seconds, but it took a team over 40 people and over a year to prepare. Uh, Costa himself drove a car through the tunnel at 168 miles per hour in order to acclimate to the speed. So this aircraft was actually modified with a laser measurement system, and 3D scans of the tunnel interior, and the plane were taken to determine exactly how much leeway Costa had, and what speed he needed to achieve. Um, even the time of day was carefully chosen so that the sun would be uh, at the pilot's back instead of his eyes when he exited the tunnels. So there you go, pretty cool. And uh, thanks for playing that 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 video. If you're uh, an audio just listener, just check out check out com mm-hmm. and they're posting it on their website so cool
0: i just uh, i mean you can probably hear the noise of that if i just put the volume up there you can probably just hear it just then but the noise of that um that aircraft in the tunnel obviously the noise amplified by by the actual tunnel itself you know and the pilot's got to concentrate i mean the concentration that he must have had to have had to pull off this this stunt is just yeah, is unreal Oh, Actually, yeah. I'll put it out there, Armando. Um, would you have uh, had a go at this? Doing this? Oh no,
2: absolutely not. No, no, <laughs> not at not at that speed. Being a
1: professional pilot,
2: I might taxi a Cessna 150 through the tunnel <laughs> at at one eighth of his speed. But uh, this kind of stunt takes some amazing skill, a great <laughs> a great team, and and boy, there is zero zero room for error i've flown an extra 300 which doesn't even have nearly the capabilities of an edge 540 and uh my gosh you know just fantastic
0: aviating what about you nev passenger on board uh this uh, no i
1: i I, no i think that would be a a bit much even for me but uh that looked about what was that five or six feet off the ground Oh no i
2: i think he was only about uh a hundred centimeters.
1: Oh, it was lower than that, was Oh gosh! Yeah.
0: I mean, it's just amazing how how you how you could keep that level of accuracy all the way. I know he obviously got these sensors and stuff built on, but you kind of, I've got in my head here that he's got like parking sensors on, so all the while going beep 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 while he's flying along through this tunnel.
2: Now these Red Bull pilots, um professional aerobatic pilots, are good. Are good when they're bad. Even the bad ones are the best at the best. But um, you know he is—he's well known in the aerobatic circles and, and part of the Red Bull Air Force. Uh, just amazing pilot,
0: so oh, absolutely fantastic. So, uh... <laughs> hold, hold, oh. uh,
2: Megan in the chat, chat room, room says uh, sh- we should ask Jody to do this when we see her at Reno. Yeah, thanks, babe. That is a shameless plug because. <laughs> Uh, Megan is coming out to Reno um, with me. Yeah. I, yeah, I leave Saturday. I leave t- uh, tomorrow, um, or, or if you're listening to the audio, audio podcast, I left yesterday uh, to go out to Reno. <laughs> <laughs> but Megan is, is going to be out there joining me, and uh, on the ramp also is one Miss Jody Ruger. So she's going to be uh, out there with us, and hopefully we'll we'll send in a nice little segment or something like that. But Jody is really really coming along in her air show act and uh go check her out her her uh handle on instagram is at QuotaFiller, and she's yeah. got some just amazing videos of her flying the pits plucky plucky the pits and i'm sure we'll have her on the show again but um yeah i totally see jody having a different answer than i just did to that question to that question you posed
0: well, I know all plugs aside, she, she's also a fantastic pilot as well. And we need to get her back on the show at some point, I think in the not too distant future. Cause I think she's, um, according to looking at her Instagram and stuff, she's doing lots of, uh, great things, uh, with aircraft. So yeah, perhaps we should, uh, invite Jody back on the show at some point. Perhaps have a special with Megan again. I'm, and I'm sounds listening. like a plan. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a plan. Right. So let's uh, move on. That's the end of the commercial news segment for this week. And, uh, we, uh, we don't get much in the way of feedback from listeners. We do get a little bit every now and again. But this one is not really feedback. This is kind of something that one of our listeners very kindly put together for us. So this is from Nick Codling. And uh, Nick very, very kindly has put together an entire, all of his own back, We didn't ask him to do this. He uh, organised an interview uh, with test pilot Elliot Seguin, who is currently working uh, to test the Ampere hybrid electric aircraft. Uh, We covered the testing of the Ampere hybrid electric aircraft on recent shows uh, as they've done some of their testing in Orkney. Here uh, up the, up north, I should say. Uh, Nick caught up with Elliot in Exeter and recorded a fantastic interview for you all to listen to on the show. So here is part one of the interview where Elliot talks about his start into becoming a test pilot.
4: I'm here at Exeter Airport with Elliot Seguin. i pronounced that right, haven't I? Elliot's,
3: Elliot Sigwin is how my Sigwin. dad says it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Seguin is one of those words that gets pronounced a lot of ways, so I don't okay. hold it against you. Well, I've got
4: a weird surname as well. My surname's is Codling, so I get all sorts of fish jokes. Okay. <laughs> so you've been in the news quite a bit this week uh, because you've been flying the Ampere electric aircraft and... I just wanted to catch up with you, find out a little bit about you, what your background is, what your involvement is with the project, and uh, just to find out a bit more about what you've been doing over the last week or so.
3: Sure thing. Uh, well, first off, uh, thanks for being here. Um, you know, you've been texting me, you're putting up with our scheduled delays, <laughs> our scheduled delays in, in Scotland and uh, working around you know, us trying to figure out how to get a hybrid airplane that's afraid of the clouds uh, through a very cloudy U.K., Uh, so I appreciate the enthusiasm and you being interested in wanting to meet and talk about the project. Uh, We did do pretty well this week with press. Um, Actually, I've been surprised uh, by the press response Mm -hmm. here in the U.K., and uh, I I don't know – I don't want to make it political, but it seems like in the States – uh, people that talk about airplanes tend to be people that lean uh, away from environmental issues, and there's much more uh, seeing here in the uh, in the UK, or rather, just maybe in Europe in general. There's more of like a common interest in these, this sort of thing, and so it seems like it, it breaks through the aviation boundary a little bit better, and yes. people seem more excited to talk about it, yeah. which is which is interesting. Uh, I don't, I'm not trying to put myself on one side of that line or the other, but it just it sort of changes the dynamic mm-hmm. and changes the discussion. And it's nice to see the enthusiasm. Yep. If that makes no,
4: sense. No, well, we've had, uh, you know, if you look at the third runway at Heathrow, for example, that's been a huge political debate. about, yeah. You know, the environmental impact and all of that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think in the last few years, we've seen quite a growth in electric aviation. Um, and I think, you know, with the, the rising popularity of electric vehicles, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely something that sparks a lot of people's interest, I think. Uh
3: honestly it's fast. You know, the program came about as a test program for Wasabi, right? I mean, we, we don't uh we only typically take uh customers' airplanes on the road uh in sort of a almost like an advertising capability, which is which is what we're doing here. Um and so when it popped up, I never would have thought that we would be flying around the planet uh supporting this project. So um and you it's not really what we normally do. So it's interesting to see <laughs> how it all falls out. And the best way to, to have that happen is with people being enthusiastic about yeah. it. Like you say, people like yourself, um, whatever, uh, getting stoked. So.
4: so for the purpose of our listeners, could you give us a bit of background about yourself? Because obviously you're based out of the USA. Uh, you're over here in beautiful, sunny England. And uh, yeah, I would imagine that most of your work and your background is is over in california it is it is um so i have traveled uh actually this year has been obnoxious for
3: international travel so this was the sixth time i crossed the uh, uh, english channel um this year wow and despite covid the guys at uh at sanders call me wizard sleeves because of how many uh, uh covid tests i've taken <laughs> uh because uh, yeah, anymore you if you're going internationally anyway um but yeah so the majority of our work like you say happens in the u.s um you know, I, I don't want to ru- wind the clock back too far, but basically Wasabi started when Just and I were two engineers at SCALED trying to figure out how mm-hmm. to be more like Mike Melville, right? So when we think of test pilots, historically, we think of military guys, right? Yep. You go yep. do your 2,000 hours in F-16s and then the uh, Air Force sends you to test pilot school, spends another couple mm-hmm. million bucks to make you a test pilot. Right. That's the majority of people that, you know, yeah. get SCTP memberships or get the kind of work that we're excited about. Uh-huh. Uh, Just and I happened to be at SCALED at a very special time where not only was SCALED still growing their test pilots and internally, but they were also, I mean, Mike Melville was there, uh, you know, whatever Mike Melville did, was a high school educated machinist when he mm-hmm. met Bert and Bert made him, you know, you know, it took him 20 years, but Bert made him into a test pilot and then eventually into an astronaut. And that was the career path that I think a lot of us there were sort of looking to be in. Uh, once the, uh, Northrop bought the company and their risk uh, appetite changed a little bit. And then the spaceship accident, there's been a lot of changes in the way that the company trains test pilots internally. So there was about seven of us that were interested in those slots mm-hmm. uh, when when that moment happened. And we all yep. sort of got cast to the wind. Um, luckily, uh, the path that Justin and I had chose was to build uh, our credentials externally as test pilots, which meant we had something to sort of fall back on. Yeah. So both Justin and myself uh, left SCALE to go into uh, full-time test pilot positions based on work we had done outside of SCALE, independent mm-hmm. of the test work that we were doing at SCALE. Yeah. But uh, for both Justin and I, it started with uh, designing and building our own airplanes, uh, mm-hmm. and then eventually uh, racing at Reno, um, right. and then eventually getting you know, flying other people's airplanes at Reno, and then doing the testing associated together get ready for reno so again these are all things that are very uh america very uh, californian right i mean home building definitely happens over here but designing building your own plan yes. is, is i, I
4: th- don't want to make th- any assumptions th- but it seems I like think it's growing and i think with youtube which is obviously where i first found out about you i think the popularity of that kind of thing um you know we talked earlier about flight chops for example he's done his his sort of home build with the with the Vans aircraft. Yeah, now. absolutely. And I think that that kind of thing Opens now is becoming a lot visible more visible to people.
3: Yeah, I, I, do, I didn't mean to say that it was uh, an American thing, but no, as no, far as the, the majority of the work that we do is absolutely in America. So the um, our hangars in Mojave still you mm-hmm. can still you know from the door to my hangar you can see the door to scaled. Uh, we still, Justin and I both still live in the Antelope Valley and the Aerospace Valley. But uh, the company was sort of set up initially where we would bring customers' projects to our hangar and then sort of finish flight tests, okay. taking advantage right. of the Mojave Airport, which is sure. sort of uniquely well suited for this kind of work. Yeah. Uh, you know, super long runways. Uh, for the most part, it's pretty quiet. Uh, Lots that's spice. It's changed a lot recently. The test pilot school is more busy than it used to. Uh, you know, Northrop's there a lot. Scaled flies a lot. So there's more traffic than there used to be. But fundamentally, it's an airport that's used to having weird stuff happen. Mm-hmm. So they have, uh, you know, fire crews. They have a, a tower that, that will work with you. They got big, long, wide runways. Uh, I mean, it was when we were racing Wasabi, my little Formula One that we designed and built and raced. Um, I would regularly call the tower and ask to do uh, simulated race laps over the airport. Uh, so I'm ripping around at you know, 250, 300 miles an hour um, inside of a class Delta with traffic flying below me. Wow. That's not something <laughs> that you can do at a lot of airports. Uh, no, so we did actually get a, in
4: the UK. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we did actually get a waiver from the FAA uh, for that eventually. But initially, it was just like, "Hey, man, like, buddy in the tower, can you yeah. help me with this?" Um, the other thing about Mojave is uh, not just a whale on the Mojave thing, but it's uncontrolled uh, after hours at night and oh, on the okay. weekends. So you right. can have, you can sort of make that decision and yep. how much support you want for your testing, which in the context of being here in the U.K., where in general I would say your airspace is the most directive airspace I've ever Very flown controlled. in, number one. And then number two, the CAA, because of the lithium polymer batteries that were on the airplane, okay. uh, had to know about every single flight we were doing and they were pre-selecting our routes uh, okay. to make sure that the lithium batteries were wow. not endangering your public. Not to say that the uh, FAA doesn't care about that, but there's a much more of a big sky theory applied uh, uh-huh. in, in, in our country than, than over here. Again, I think it goes back to what I was kind of talking about earlier with the environmental thing, like um, in maybe all of Europe, but specifically in the UK, it feels like we're all, like, every time I come here, it feels like we're all sitting on a boat. And, like, everyone recognizes, like, if one of us goes down with the boat, we're all going down with the boat, right? <laughs> uh, and you can feel that when you're working with the CAA. Uh, I mean, the guys were fantastic to work with, et cetera. But it just seemed like they were more aware of, uh, of you know, sort of the, the general risks of hypothetically flying a uh, hybrid aircraft the entire length of the UK with, yeah. you know, hundreds of pounds of lithium lithium batteries right. in, in the belly, which, of course, we did this week. So Yeah.
4: So, uh, yeah, because... I was obviously following your progress online and, and waiting and you were sort of holding a lot. Um, I'm guessing that put a restriction that you, you weren't able to fly IFR.
3: Yeah, 100%. So I, I mean, again, I sort of talked about how the project started for Wasabi. So. Uh, we were approached when this thing was, uh, you know, they had the, they had already done this once with a different SkyMaster with sort of mixed results and, um, they had the batteries and they had the basic sort of architecture of what they wanted to do and they were looking for us to help with flight tests. The plan was that we would, you know, uh, establish a baseline, uh, which meant first proving the pedostatic system. So, uh, you know, having some background at the test pilot school and having done some of this stuff before, Justin and I were sort of, uh, uniquely qualified for that. Uh, so establish the pedostatic system makes sense, then establish a baseline as far as performance and miles per gallon, et cetera, mm-hmm. and then install the electric. And then you could have a direct comparison back to okay. see that it was more efficient or right. as more, much more efficient as you thought it would be. And that was sort of where the program was sort of set up to end. It would all be happening in, uh, Camarillo, which is in, you know, north of LA, but, you know, s- Southern California. And, yeah. uh, besides a little bit of marine layer that's typical in the morning, it's, very different weather, say, than here. So that meant that uh, the engineers, while Just and I uh, loved working with them because they were so aggressively conservative about the general safety of the airplane, one of the basic assumptions that we built into all the safety calcs was, uh, we're not going to fly this thing in the rain, we're not going to fly it near lightning, we're not going to fly it <laughs> in clouds, right? And that's just sort of a fundamental assumption that's yeah. built into the whole setup. Yeah, It's a little different when you now take the show on the road, right? So, um, I'm I'm rambling a little bit, so I apologize. No, that's fine. This is great. From my perspective, right, so the the hardest thing you'll ever be able to replace as far as an airplane uh, with electric is probably some sort of like a long haul situation, right? The the energy density is like a real problem if you're going to be flying for many hours, right? Mm -hmm. So as a result, if there's going to be entry into the electric uh, world, it's going to come from the other side. It's going to come from very short hauls, right? Which means in order to demonstrate a technology that is a short haul, you're going to need you know, an established airline that, that exists in the short haul. Well, mm-hmm. What does that mean? That means you're probably going to be a place where there's like really windy roads because we need to get the drive time up, right? A ferry would be really good. A bridge that they haven't built yet would be really good, right? <laughs> Anything to slow down the cars that you're competing yeah. against to yeah. justify an airline. So that's why we went to Hawaii, right? So mm-hmm. Hawaii is one of those places, right? Windy yeah. roads, uh, open bodies of water, et cetera. Northern Scotland, uh, where we were last week, same thing. And then uh, Southern uh, southern England. Now the problem with those places is that all the places I mentioned have a lot of humidity, which means suddenly this base assumption that we had about visible moisture, clouds, lightning, et cetera, is like dramatically affecting what's okay. going on. Uh, part the next part is that in order to get approval to fly here because of our lithium batteries with the CIA, uh, they were pretty directive about what was going on and they were pretty interested in the engineering that went into it. So when mm-hmm. they heard that we had made that fundamental assumption, clear clouds, uh, no flight in rain, they built that into our limitations. Okay. So, uh, I, what the reality is that um, I have a lot of confidence in our engineers. I know that those cons- uh, assumptions are really conservative. Uh, but as a test pilot, if there's the company's going to give you a way out by saying you don't need to fly when there's clouds, you don't need to fly when there's rain, uh, I'm not going to. Why would I take that personal mm-hmm. risk? Which means mm-hmm. that we're sitting in, in Scotland for
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: uh, for the better part of a week uh, while we waited uh, for the weather to clear to get down here. So
0: Wow. Honestly, uh, I think I think we should definitely we should just all just just leave. I think uh, Nev, I might go and just uh, let Nick sort of take over.
1: Really, well, he's he's got the hang of all that, hasn't he? Yeah. So um, yeah, we're a bit uh, a bit redundant, really, aren't we? Uh, so. <laughs> no, thank nice thank you, Nick. yeah, thanks, Nick, that's for that. Super uh, nicely done. Very good. Very uh, you good. know,
2: this is a, a a great example of our listeners and our little podcast family. Anybody that's out there. Uh, if you find a good interview, if you find you, – you feel that somebody should be highlighted, go ahead. You know, it's just as simple as grabbing a, an iPhone or something like that and just using the, the internal microphone and and putting it on a table because there are so many – uh just wonderful aviators and so many wonderful aviation stories out there that there's no possible way that we can find all of them so you guys are our tentacles so <laughs> go out there find a good interview you don't even have to you don't even have to, to tell us that you're doing it i know fish jokes right that literally i laughed i laughed out loud at that um because carry-on i get all the luggage jokes uh even from my <laughs> wife earlier in this chat room um but yeah, mm. go out there, find a good interview. You don't even have to tell us that you're doing it. Just do it, send it in, and uh, we'll take care of the rest. But uh, Elliot is an awesome guy. I love watching his YouTube content. Wasabi Air Racing is such a cool organization. Um, I'm sure they're going to get into it, but him flying that Rutan uh, airplane in in Mojave is a pretty crazy video. Him ended up crashing into a uh, former, I think it's a FAA. <laughs> hut or building or something like that It has the, the the building had a story behind it i can't remember what it was now but i'll uh, i'll see elliot this sunday at, at reno he's flying the uh, uh an sx 300 in the sport class so i'll uh, i'll be sure to uh tell tell him that nick says hello and and uh, make the connection so
0: yeah don't forget you can as armando said you can send in your uh your Interviews, if you do one for us, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Uh, all the details will be at the end of the show. And uh, I even heard that you can even get uh, half decent recordings from, from an iPhone. Yeah.
2: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I've used in some of the interviews, but I just don't tell you guys.
0: <laughs> I was waiting, I, I was actually waiting for uh, for Nev to say something there, but
1: he did No, say. I, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Nev, mm. by the way, Carry Nev in, Nev, this guy in the chat room says that uh carrion is also the the decaying flesh of dead animals including human flesh. Um that's how I measure here in the US we have the SATs. There's a verbal portion to the SAT um which is a standardized test. That's how I measure people's uh, uh SAT verbal scores and how intellectual they are. So, <laughs> if you go for the luggage joke or as Nev just proved why he's on the show Love his. I love him for his mind. Goes for the rotten flesh joke.
1: I'm sure no one's ever pointed that out before. Sure. <laughs> oh, you're, minor- you're
2: in the minority.
1: <laughs> anyway.
0: Oh, excellent. So um, moving on to the next very important part of the show uh, because of the uh, time of year that we are currently in. And we're going to hand things over to uh, Armando uh, to introduce uh, this next segment of the show.
2: Yeah, thanks, Carlos. This, this, uh, you know, we, we would, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be right if we just kind of went, went through the show without acknowledging that it is the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the attacks, uh, that day. Um, so what I was kind of thinking, you know, there, there's really no better content out there than Lieutenant Colonel Jeff's, uh, personal accounts from that story. And I just don't think that, that, that it gets much better than that. So, so if you guys are okay with that, we'll you know, we'll talk here for a second, but but you know what, we're just going to play that out because it's just such a just a uh, such a personal experience that that while it was unique to him, it was the same feelings that a lot of people experienced that day, and in, in fact millions of people experienced that day. Um specifically involved in aviation, just what a um a milestone day in aviation where it was both used you know for a, for a terrible purpose using those aircraft um the crews the passengers for for such a for such an evil thing yet at the same time we saw some just heartwarming and inspiring stories of of the follow-on when the aircraft were were forced on the ground and you know i think there's a uh, a Broadway play now about, um, I'm sorry, John. What, what's the name of it? Come from Away. Right, and it's uh, it's about the story about a small town um, in Canada that that hosted so many airplanes and and people opened up their doors and their hearts uh, to to host those folks. So while it was just a terrible evil day, um, there was um, for me 9/11. Now I had already what's that oh the uh so the while i had already been in the air force for for a few years in the couple years before that i had actually been working in in the military's counter narcotics and and narcotics interdiction um mission in the caribbean um so i i had a pretty easy start to my career Uh, I was eventually selected for a special operations mission and assignment, and I showed up on August, uh, uh, 2001. So one month before the attacks, I was still unqualified in the aircraft. I, I just remember so clearly the first month that I was there thinking, oh man, this is just going to be a great assignment, great, uh, four or five years, um, you know, flying counter drug and, and things like that. And, uh, and then, and then once that day took place, it was just, uh, it was just game on and I'd never seen a military organization, uh, until that day just come to life like that. And, and like I said, it was a, it was a joint special operations organization. So we had every service, the army, Navy, Marines, air force, uh, and, in and, in uh, a, Including our civilian partners and our uh, federal agencies here in the United States, but I, I saw something come to life that day that that was just um, just uh, amazing and, and nothing short of inspiring. Um, so I kind of just wanted to to have, I don't know, it, uh, we've talked about it on the show before. Everybody's kind of recounted their their memories of that day, but I, amongst the the three of us, I wanted to just kind of talk about what you know how were you affected that day? Nev, I, I'd love to hear your input. Um Nev and Carlos, I, I'd love to hear from the British standpoint, what what was it like over there that day and, and where were you and how did you find out about the attacks and 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 so on. So I do not I don't know if you guys
1: you- Yeah, well I was down in uh Woking in Surrey, uh working for a company down there at the time. And um, so this is going to be about 2.30, forty in the afternoon hour time, I, I guess, something like that. Um, and uh, something came up on, on the news. Someone had a radio on somewhere. Um, but of course, bearing in mind when it was, internet connectivity 20 years ago was nothing like it is today. And we just couldn't get on to any of the websites at all there was just you know com- com- everybody was out of bandwidth and it was so you knew something was going on but nobody quite knew what at, at this stage and um, I think we went downstairs to the warehouse where someone had a television on and there I think it was on Sky News actually the um the, the horror of the thing was unfolding and of course with this the very early news that was happening there was lots of speculation oh it's just a cessna that's gone into one of the twin towers all all kinds of breaking news kind of stuff which inevitably was as and obviously as we found out was terribly inaccurate but it was um it it took some time to, to to realize the extent of what had happened and even then, I don't think people fully realised it. It was like they were not believing their eyes. And I'm sure when people drove home, you know, that evening, you know, three or four hours later, um, and it was obviously just wall to wall coverage on the news and then obviously in the newspapers the following day. But um to, to try and actually believe what happened and then wake up the next day and still having to pinch yourself because of, of what you what you just seen. Um so, yes. And of course, just at that time uh, or very soon after, I think within a week of that happening, uh, there was a large audiovisual show in um, Germany, I think it was, which we were all we all went to. Uh, but of course, the Americans weren't flying. There was no transatlantic traffic at all. Um, and there were very large booths that just were not occupied at all. Uh, because our friends from the US couldn't, couldn't fly. Um, and that was, you know, and that was one of the things that hit us straight away, obviously. But then as more and more things started to, to come out, um, about who might be responsible for it and the methods that they used to do it, it, it did actually show. And I know it's being clever after the event here, but it just did show how many, um, how, uh, how lax some of the things were in airline operations that allowed this to happen in the first place, and of course, as we all know, it, it changed aviation security for uh, forever.
2: Yeah. How about you, Carlos?
0: Yeah, I, I I can remember the day that this happened because I was I was in the middle of doing a, I was working for a removals company at the time, and we were traveling back from a job. Uh, in the truck, and we were on the M6. That's w- weird. I can remember that, but we we're, were on the M6, travelling back to uh, to Norwich. And the news cut. Co- obviously, the news coverage was completely blank at all. I think nearly every news station in the entire UK was just was was just with the news was on there. There was no music. There was no, you know, no conversations about anything other than what was going on over in the US. And all I wanted to do was just get home. Cause I wanted to see what was going on, and you know, see what what had happened, because the reports initially were like, yeah, you know, as Nev said, it was kind of small aircraft. There wasn't, um, there wasn't, you know, there was a there was a little bit of banter about something that, that could have been a commercial airliner that had gone into there, but you know, it was at the time it was one, not two aircraft. And obviously, when I'd got home that evening, the, you know, the, the news was was, was out that the buildings had collapsed by by them both of them. That was, yeah, things things definitely change for for a lot of people at that, at that on that particular day. And um, you know, a lot of changes have happened since you know since that um, that day in the aviation industry, especially with security. We all know how security is now at airports in regards to liquids and uh, other bits and pieces like that but um yeah i can i can remember it. it was it was yeah it was surreal when it happened it really was you know the way i think the uh, even though the, with the with the communications that weren't as great as they are now with broadband internet and stuff like that i think the the pictures and stuff that they that they got at the time were you know i think the news feeds done done a good job to get to get the story out yeah you know, to the world from the US
2: yeah absolutely and 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 thinking of the technology advances in the last 20 years uh i mean just think about that one of one of the things that i wanted to talk about briefly was just the advances in aviation over the past 20 years um as well as uh, you guys have both touched on it just the the changes in aviation since then just from the security procedures to being able to go to the gate and meet your family or meet the people that you're traveling with um to actual physical changes in the aircraft such as the doors and things like that but um for for me sort of in a in a unique position to have seen um, the u.s military jump into action just in the days now, now 20 years on there's been plenty of documentaries plenty of people that were in leadership positions in the us government that have said we we just missed it we just missed all the clues um and there are high ranking officials um that have said in the in, uh, ensuing years the system was blinking red at the time and and we just it was such an inconceivable attack like folks in the chat room are saying everybody went numb that day because it was such an inconceivable thing now within just a few hours the uh the military intelligence analysts and 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 our our federal agency analysts um had had deduced the fact that there weren't very many uh terrorist groups in the world that could have executed such an attack um therefore it was it was pretty early on and and you guys can uh go out there's a wonderful podcast uh, called intelligence matters with michael morrell who is the uh Uh, acting director of the CIA at the time. And he talks with uh, people that were in the White House. They were with the president that day um, saying everything that we're saying. At first, we thought it was a small aircraft that had gone in a wayward pilot, um, unique that it was just such a a clear and and unremarkable day in New York City, in Washington, D.C. that day. Um, But additionally, saying that very quickly after the second airplane hit, that it was it, it was almost a, uh, a given who had, who had done this. And, and I saw that analysis and the reaction to that firsthand, um, in watching an entire command spring to actions in, in the U.S. Special Operations Command. And within just a few days, they were, they were, they were operational in the Middle East and Afghanistan. Um, so in, in the time since then, uh you know I, aviation has just uh changed so much how how do you guys feel w- will the pendulum swing back the other way are we now just accustomed to and will live from now on with with these kind of security procedures and and things like that And and then also, how how did it affect you? How did all of this? Nev, you were traveling for work. You've always you always have. um, How did it affect you personally, either in the short term after after that day, or or in the long term?
1: Yes, it was very interesting because uh, flying, um, certainly in the UK came back to normal i'm I'm not talking about transatlantic or long distance flying but domestic flying came back to normal reasonably quickly um but we were i tell you what though going through airports everybody was looking out for suspicious people um now how you you can identify that i those Hmm. people i don't really know but there was a lot of that going on at the time. Um, and of course, what's subsequently happened, and I suppose my biggest concern, really, thinking about the future, is that these people were able to do that because of uh, failings in our system, whether it was at the security uh, gates, the um, um, immigration, or whether it was on the aircraft itself with the um Uh, cockpit doors not being locked. Um, And so we then spend the next 20 years putting our liquids in plastic bags so they they can be analysed. And I I take no pleasure in saying this at all, but we're always going to be at least one or maybe two steps behind the next thing. And because of the events in Afghanistan in the last 20 years, um, we have to expect that there's going to be something else happening. And in fact, it was just today that the head of MI5 on uh, the UK uh, television was saying exactly that. We're we're at just as as much risk as we have been previously. So I think we're all kind of waiting for the next thing, whether that will happen in a year's time, 10 years' time, 20 years' time. But I I think we would be naive to think that this sort of thing couldn't happen again, or, or something akin to it at least.
2: Mm. Yeah, that, that I couldn't agree more. We are, we are bound by rules, law, budgets, acquisitions, you know, all these, uh, bureaucratic processes that tend to, uh, really, really take some time while, while these kinds of asymmetric threats are not bound by those kinds of, of boundaries and, and they will always, uh, Stay a step ahead, and that that has been over the entire course of history. That was, as I mentioned, when I was when I was flying uh, counter narcotics um, interdiction missions. That was our biggest challenge. Also, we were bound by these massive machines and bureaucratic process and the legal process. Yet they weren't. You know, they. Um, so whether it's a a uh, political insurgency in a country, whether it's a, a, a drug organization, a cartel or terrorist organizations, they they always have a lot more operational leeway than than we do in in, in developed societies. So I couldn't agree with you more.
0: I was just going to say, actually, guys, I don't know whether you saw it or not. There was a really good um, series that that, that uh, National Geographic aired uh, at the end of August that actually aired, first aired 29th of August. There were six episodes Uh, the last one was aired on the 1st of september uh, that national geographic put together it was a really good um, set of programs all based on specific timelines through the course of that day and it followed the first responders and then obviously the people that um, that got caught up in the in the towers at the, at themselves on the day, and it was a really good, you know, really well put together program that uh, that they that they aired. I don't know if anyone's probably or not seen it. It was on National Geographic, um, as I said, at the end of August, and just finished airing on the first of September. But it was it they they had lots of footage and stuff that wasn't uh, hasn't been shown or you know hasn't been shown so much on the um, open press, but. It was a really well put together program, and it focused quite heavily on the people who were affected on that day—not just the people um, in and around the building, but the people who were in the building who managed to um, manage to escape. So it's definitely one to, uh, to to keep your eyes open for and to watch. Yeah.
2: Uh, now, guys, before we we move on to to the next piece, um, we uh, one of the the most just amazing things for me. That day and and the and the few days afterwards and the few weeks and months and years was uh, something that I had never witnessed before in my life, which was the the solidarity and the resolve uh, demonstrated by all of us. Right. So that was the one time in history in our generation that um, I saw every country come together and and. I, I don't need to tell you guys this, but I have a, just such a, a special um, place in my heart for for the UK, and and um, that was one of those moments where no matter what was going on in the world, so many countries came together, and uh, as an American, I, I really want to take a moment to, to thank uh, the British people and all of the countries in Europe and all the countries in Africa and the Middle East and the Pacific and that, that came together w- with, with us that day. And, and it was very unfortunate. Just a few years later, you know, you, you guys had the London bombings and, and the subway attacks. And, and it was another moment where we all stood together. But, um, just, you know, let's, let's not forget that. I don't, I don't want to sound super preachy or, or over philosophical or anything like that. But, um, but just, you know, remember that we're all in this together. Um, so if, if you guys will indulge me, what, what we'll do now is just, um, you know, for our listeners, just take a, 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 a quick 30 second pause. Um, we'll call it a moment of silence and, uh, and then let's go right into, uh,
5: Lieutenant Colonel Jeff's piece, if that's okay. Hello, my name is Jeff Feldmuth. I'm currently a captain at American Airlines flying 737s. But on September 11th, 2001, I was a first officer flying the 767 on day four of a four-day trip. And this is my story of that day. It was a beautiful morning, both in Caracas, where we were departing from, and in Kennedy, which was our final destination, is where I am based. Uh, we were scheduled to depart at 8 o'clock in the morning, And we did so, uh, taking off out of Caracas right at 8 o'clock on our way up to New York, where we knew is a beautiful, cloudless, beautiful, gorgeous summer day. Everything was normal until we were handed off by uh, the Venezuelan air traffic controllers to San Juan Center. And as we checked in with San Juan Center, their first words to us after we checked in was that, American, you need to check with your company Kennedy is closed. At the time, uh, the captain was flying the aircraft. I was on the radios. And so I queried him, well, what's going on? His response sent chills up and down our spines, because being a retired military officer and pilot, as was the captain, these words are words you never want to hear. I can't tell you over an open frequency. The alarm bells going off in both of our heads were screaming at us saying, something is drastically wrong. If you can't tell us over an open frequency, it must be really bad. Fortunately, the model of the 767 we were flying that day had a satellite phone in the cockpit. So we made a phone call to Dallas, got our dispatcher on the line, and asked, one, what was going on, and two, what were we supposed to do? So he told us that two airplanes had hit the World Trade Center. We immediately recognized this as the bad news. However, he did not tell us that they were commercial airliners. He did not tell us that one of them was ours. So he then directed us to make our way towards Miami and they would figure out what to do with this once we got there. So we got off the phone with him, and I coordinated with San Juan Center to get clearance to go from our present position, which was just south of Puerto Rico, over to Miami, which is about halfway between Caracas and uh, JFK. So now we are making our way towards Miami, and we still have questions. So we are sending messages to the company trying to get some answers about One, what's going to happen is when we get to Miami, and two, what's really going on? And the only response we get is a rather disturbing message through the printer that says, not even the flight attendants are allowed in the cockpit. At this point, the crash axe comes out of its holder, which is right behind my seat, and it is now in my lap. Charlie, the captain, looks at me and goes, Jeff, it's your airplane. I want to be free to handle what's going on, uh, whatever that may be. At this point, we uh, make a decision that we are not going to tell anyone on board what is going on, that we're going to Miami or what has happened in New York City. For all intents and purposes, they think they're still on their way to Kennedy. So we switch over to Miami Center. This takes about another hour. It's about a three, three and a half hour flight from Caracas to Miami. We have opened up our publications because we had all the JFK approach plates and maps out, so now we had to switch over to Miami doesn't take very long, but it's still something we have to look at. And all of a sudden, Miami Center comes up and makes a broadcast to everyone on the radio saying, Everyone stand by. I will be calling you back in sequence. All U.S. airspace is closed. I'll be asking you where you want to land outside of the United States. So if our hackles weren't raised before, they are now. So now we can't go to Miami. As the first officer, I have the publications that cover diversion fields uh, for Latin America and the Caribbean. So I pull out my book and I select, with Charlie's approval, that we're going to go to NASA on the Bahamas. It's uh, 11,000 feet of runway. It's an American Airlines station. It, um, so we can be serviced there uh, and we have. People there who can handle us and take care of us for whatever is going on. So for the next 15 to 20 minutes, we listen to Miami Center divert people all over the Caribbean. Can't go back to San Juan, that's U.S. territory. Can't go to the U.S. Virgin Islands, that's U.S. territory. People are going back to the Dominican Republic, to Haiti, to the other Virgin Islands, back to Aruba, Antigua, you name it, they're going there. So he stops for a moment. It comes across the radio and goes, okay, these three flights are going to be allowed in. We were first. We were going to be allowed into Miami. There was a continental flight, roughly a half an hour behind us out of Caracas that was scheduled Caracas to Miami. Then the American Caracas Miami flight that was an hour behind us. To my knowledge, those are the last three airplanes to land in Miami that day. So we're going to be first. In those days, Miami had two east-west runways, which were the primaries, and one uh, northeast-southwest runway. They were landing to the east that day. And normally, when you check in with Miami Approach Control, you do not say anything on the radio because the frequency is that busy because there's that many airplanes. On the frequency try it all to land at Miami they will call you back when the guy gets to take a breath that morning it's roughly 11 o'clock we are the only one on the radio we are the only airplane in this guy's airspace it was the weirdest sensation in the world to hear the quiet on the radio it's noisier at 3 a.m. so that's a little unnerving there's also nobody on the TCAS uh, which is uh, a way we can see other airplanes uh on a scope in the in the uh on our displays it shows other airplanes in their relation to us in altitude there's no one else there no general aviation no business no commercial just us so as we maneuver out to the west of the field again i'm flying uh to line up on what was then known as 09 left which is now 08 right we're about 10 miles out on final and i'm looking out at the airport and if the hair wasn't standing up on the back of my neck it is now for those of you who have ever visited what is affectionately called the boneyard out in tucson arizona you'll know what miami looks like there were airplanes everywhere everywhere the entire north ramp which is a huge cargo ramp it is basically the length of the airport east west is covered with airplanes parked nose to nose tail to tail Wing over wing, I mean, it was frightening to look at. A lot of the taxiways um, had airplanes parked on them. There's a huge hold pad in just to the west of the main terminal that was covered with airplanes. So this is what Charlie and I are looking at. And, they, and it's a beautiful day in Miami as well. So we're coming in and we configure the airplane. And about 1,500 feet above the ground, I call for the final flap setting, which is flaps 30. I've never had this happen before. And I've never had this happen since. We get a condition which is known as split flaps, where one side of the aircraft has flaps 30. The other side of the aircraft has flaps 25. It is an emergency situation. Uh, it's not that difficult to land with. It's unusual. We don't, something we don't practice very often. Uh, but normally you would go around, go out in a holding pattern and try to resolve the situation. It takes about anywhere from 15 to 20 to 30 minutes to run the checklist it's kind of complicated depending on how it works out so here we are looking at split flaps approximately four miles from the field and all charlie says jeff i'm sorry i'm taking the airplane and i looked at him and says charlie it's your airplane here's your ref speed and basically i selected the flaps 25 approach speed which we have available to us rather easily Because we both knew, with what we were looking at outside, and a little bit we knew about the situation, that we were landing. There was no doubt in our mind. Now, prior to 9-11, if an aircraft was seen taxiing into the gate area with its flaps extended, that was a signal to air traffic control that you were being hijacked. It also was a signal that you wanted armed intervention now. I mean, right now. So we know this. So as we land, Charlie takes the airplane to clear the runway. I switch over to ground control and I am yelling at the ground controller on the radio. We're a little nervous. And I'm yelling at this guy. Miami Tower, this is American 936. Our flaps are down because they're broke. I want to make sure beyond any reasonable doubt that we're not going to have cops coming out shooting out our tires to disable the aircraft. So they understand that. As we taxi in, Charlie makes his first announcement to the passengers about what's going on. His PA goes something like this. Ladies and gentlemen, from looking outside or by looking at your watches, you may realize that this is not New York. And that's how we started. He then proceeds to tell them the little bit that we know about the two aircraft hitting the World Trade Center. Remember, at this point, we do not know the towers have fallen. We do not know the commercial airliners. We do not know about the Pentagon or Western Pennsylvania, Shanksville. He does ask the people to remain seated once we get to the gate uh, for the agents to come on board to explain what is going to happen, how they're going to get to their destination. So we taxi in and miraculously, we actually get a gate right away. I don't know how they did that because there was, like I said before, there was airplanes everywhere. And as we get to the gate, we park, shut down. We've been through our checklist. The agent comes on board, and she gets on the PA. And now we all know that the towers are down. We all know they're commercial airliners. We know that some of them are ours. We find out about the Pentagon. We still do not know about Western Pennsylvania, Shanksville. So there you could hear a pin drop on the airplane. You know, it's like almost 200 people on this airplane, including the crew. And there is dead silence. Everybody gets off the airplane. The crew is still on board uh, the captain and I, and uh, the flight attendants. And we're sitting there because we are not supposed to be there. So I'm sitting in the cockpit and I turn on my cell phone. There's a voicemail from my wife, who is in absolute tears. She has no idea where. Or if I even am, I'm frantically trying to call her at this point. But because of the phone system of the hotel, the, hotel the restaurant where she worked at the time, uh, I can't get through and I can't break in on the line. So I said, as I said earlier, I'm supposed to land about noon in New York, which puts me home before my children get home from school. My children are in first, third and uh, 11th grade at this point. So fortunately, I have the phone number to the elementary school. I get the secretary on the phone, and I go, "Miss Fish, what do the children know?" And she goes, "Well, we have not told them anything." And I go, "Well, I'm a pilot for American Airlines, and that's where she lost it." Uh, once she gets a little composed, I explain to her that my children need to be aware of where I am. They expected to find me. At home when they got home from school so she agrees to do that for me now I request that she call the high school because I do not have their number because I know that my oldest daughter is very aware of the events of the day in fact she's in an English class watching on live TV my airplane fly into the World Trade Center my daughter Is sitting in that class. When the guidance counselor comes to her room. To get her. When that happens. My daughter. Knew I was dead. I think my family had it harder than I did. At least. I knew I was. I knew where I was. I knew I was safe for now. But I couldn't get a hold of them. Like I said. They did not know where or if I even was. So that was kind of a tough part of the day. Uh, so after about an hour, um, sitting there in the airplane, we find out that we're going to a hotel. Uh, and for Charlie and I, it ends up being our normal layover hotel, which is down on Miami Beach. So as Charlie and I exit the terminal to go get our limousine van service out to the uh, hotel... One of the Miami news stations is there and this woman throws a microphone in my face and asks me my opinion of the events of the day. And this is the last thing I needed. All I could think to say to this woman into the mic was there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I walked away. Was it on the news? I don't know. Do I care? No. Um, it was uh, rather tragic uh, what was going on. So we end up. Uh, at the hotel and this is a hotel that is almost exclusively airline crews in fact it's almost exclusively American Airlines and United Airlines the two companies involved in the events that day Uh, there's hundreds of us there and it was probably the best place to be I remember sitting out by the pool trying to calm down and I have uh, a woman sitting on each knee uh, they were flight attendants and I still know these women to this day. And I had two women sit, flat, sitting on my knees, on my shoulders, falling their eyes out. They were just so distraught. Uh, normally at this hotel, there's a cooler out by the pool and it's an honor system. You put a dollar in and you can take a beer. Uh, the cooler was not there. Instead, there was this 50 gallon trash can full of beer and sodas and stuff. And guys were just walking downstairs, throwing a 20 in the box, and everybody wants a beer, it's on me. There was uh, that kind of camaraderie going on. People walking around the lobby. Uh, Anybody got a charger for this kind of cell phone? Somewhere in here, I finally do get a hold of my wife. Yet, let's just say that was an interesting discussion. It's hard enough even just thinking about it. So we spend the next five days in Miami. I'm sitting there at the pool, watching the F-15s fly up and down the coastline, jealous as all get out because I had been retired for less than two years flying that exact same airplane. And part of me is still really angry about the whole day, not just because we were attacked, but because I spent 22 years on active duty being paid to be shot at to protect this country, but I could shoot back. And now they were trying to kill me and I couldn't do anything about it. That really, really made me angry. It still does. So we get home Saturday night to New York. I'm still not home yet. Uh, I've been gone for nine straight days, four days of the trip, and then another five days in Miami. And because of the events, the FAA has waived a lot of the crew rest uh, requirements, trying to get the airlines back on their feet. Because, I mean, we are scattered all over the United States, all over the world. I have friends who were stuck in uh, Gander uh, up in uh, Canada, uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, over in Europe. So trying to just find pilots who were able to fly, were local enough to fly, was getting to be a real issue. Because there was metal and crews all over the world where they weren't supposed to be. So our trip, our next trip was the same one we had just flown. It was uh, show up in the morning. Uh, first thing in the morning, fly out to Bermuda, stay the day in Bermuda, come back to New York the next day. And then on the second, third, and fourth days, we'd be flying through the Caribbean. So we're trying to get released for one day at home. And uh, what we offer the schedules, listen, we will start our trip on Monday when it comes back from Bermuda. We're just asking for one day at home. And the schedulers are arguing with the captain. He says, we have to, they're telling us we have to be there the next morning. We have to be there. And Charlie finally tells the guy, listen, I'm hanging up now. Am I coming to work on Monday or am I coming up to work a week from now? You tell me because I'm not going to be here tomorrow morning. We're not coming. And so they finally give in. So we decide to show up uh, Monday morning for uh, the remainder of the three days of our trip. And I finally get to go home. I get home. Oh, it's probably close to midnight on Saturday night. Finally get to be with uh, my family. Needless to say, uh, it was a quick turn because uh, I did have to go back to work on Monday. So Sunday was spent very close to those I love. Interesting. Uh, I normally leave for work three hours before I have to be there. But on that first trip on Monday morning, I decided to make it four hours. It was an hour, not enough. Uh, it took me four hours. Uh, I got to the aircraft at departure time. Uh, I was only I was the only pilot there. Charlie had was an hour behind me. Uh, I had like three flight attendants. I think I needed five or six. Uh, They were just so happy to see crews uh, make it that it wasn't a problem. The hardest part of that drive-in wasn't the traffic jam. The hardest part was driving across the Verrazano Bridge. The Verrazano Bridge is the bridge between Staten Island and the southern end of New York City by Coney Island. It's at the entrance to the bay, to the harbor. And if you look off to the right, there is the southern tip of Manhattan, where the World Trade Center had been. You could see the smoke from miles away. But from the bridge, especially once you approach the, the apex of the bridge, the top of the bridge, you could see the hole. You could see the fire still burning. In fact, that hole smoked for months and months and months. That was the hard part. I almost stopped the car. Uh, it was just almost overwhelming to see that lack of skyline. To this day, when I drive over that bridge, I look over there at where the towers had stood. And yes, the Freedom Tower is there now. But for years it wasn't. And it still hurts, even though the Freedom Tower is there. It's really cool doing it at night because uh, the Freedom Tower, of course, it's the tallest building in the city. It's the tallest building on the East Coast. And it's all lit up, and it, you know it's just like, that to me is a shining testament in honor of all those who suffered and died that day. So I publish this letter every year. This is the first time I've recorded it, and it's taken a few attempts to get this far. Uh, as you can tell, I get kind of choked up. So initially started just sending this out as an email a year after 9-11, just to my family and friends. Some of them asked me if they could share it with people they knew. And I said, sure. It's not something that I'm trying to bring attention to myself. It's something that I put out there so people don't forget. I can tell you now that this letter has made it probably all the way around the world. I know it's gone as far west as Australia and as far east as Europe. And I'm sure there are some people in South America who've read the letter that I've posted. And it's been shared by friends, family, people I don't even know. In fact, one year I even got it back. Uh, it came back to me from somebody who shared it with me, didn't realizing it was actually my letter, uh, which I thought was kind of amusing. And the same holds true for this recording. People have asked me to do this uh, so it could be published. Part of me almost didn't want to do it, but part of me says it needs to be shared. I know it's been read on other podcasts. The letter has. Uh, I know that A certain very famous radio talk show host in the United States has a copy of the letter. As I said, this is so people do not forget. Because of my sharing my letter over the years, I know other people who have shared their stories in a similar way. I just received one from a woman who saw my story for the first time and replied to me and shared her story. Her husband was in the service uh, she was visiting family. Her husband was actually not on duty at the time. He was uh, a reservist. Actually, no, he wasn't. A re- he was on active duty, but he was home with the children. He was watching the children while she was in Oklahoma. And the fact they lived in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, her story of him being called in because he was actually a pilot for a VIP unit at Andrews Air Force Base. And now he had to get the, president, the vice president out of town. She's in Oklahoma. She can't get home. Her story of getting home to get her children and the neighbors who took care of the kids because dad was gone and she was away. So there's thousands of stories out there. Our church had a service for our teen group. My wife and I attended with my oldest daughter. And it was very interesting because in his homily, Father McDermott got up and said, some of you may be wondering where God was in all of this. And he proceeds to tell the stories of all the people who weren't in the tower that morning, the woman who uh, missed her train, the gentleman who forgot that he'd had a dental appointment, so he went there instead of work, someone else who missed the train, someone else who stopped for donuts, to put it all in perspective, realize that 50,000 people worked in those two towers. Less than 3,000 perished. But the number of lives impacted by that day goes far beyond those 3,000 families. There's the hundreds of thousands of people who were either stuck on Manhattan Island that day, stuck in traffic in other places, stranded uh, all over the world because the United States airspace basically shut down. People like myself, by the woman I just mentioned, trying to get home to her kids. My brother's a a doctor in central New Jersey. How he had to evacuate his hospital of anybody who could, did not require to be in the hospital because they were expecting mass casualties to my sister who had her children were friends with other children who lost parents that day. It was a terrible event. Let us never forget what happened. Let us never forget how this country came together to respond to that tragedy in such unity. So I end this on that note. May God bless us all. Thank you.